says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bargesus, who was also with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O fool of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And Father, we just humbly ask in this moment that by the help and power of your Holy Spirit, you would just prepare each one of us to hear what you would be trying to say to us by the voice of God through the word of God this morning. We pray that you would give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive and that your spirit would be our teacher and the one who's speaking directly to us as we open your word together in an act of worship. Now bless your word, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. A question this morning, would you consider yourself a servant of the Lord? And my emphasis there being upon the word servant, I'm not asking if you're a believer in the Lord. My question is, would you consider yourself a servant of the Lord? And there's really an easy way to discern that. First and foremost, simply ask yourself, in what way or in what ways are you actually serving the Lord. You know, as followers of Jesus, we should be becoming increasingly more like Jesus. And one of Jesus's coined statements was when he declared that he as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for the welfare of others. Jesus said, I didn't come the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of glory, God himself. He said, I didn't come into the world to get people to serve me. I didn't enter into this world to get people to wait on me and minister to me and serve me. He said, I actually came not to be served, but to serve. And if the spirit of Jesus, therefore, is ruling inside of my heart, the spirit of Jesus dwells within me as a believer. Christ is indwelling, but is Christ enthroned? And if Christ is enthroned in my heart and ruling on my heart, then it should be true increasingly that I am becoming more and more like my Lord. And those same things are what my heart is being directed towards. So what does it mean to be a servant of the Lord? Well, first of all, it implies, I know this isn't rocket science, that you actually serve. That is that you in your Christian experience are actually doing something more than just taking things in participating as a spectator coming and 
sitting in a church periodically or attending things where other people serve and do the work and you enjoy the benefits of it. It actually implies that in some way you actually serve. You do things to fulfill the purposes of the Lord and to serve his kingdom's work. And the Lord's work is something, honestly, that all believers really should be engaged in, in some capacity. In some form or capacity, we should all be engaged in some way participating and serving and doing the Lord's work. And that involves some things that we should be aware of. And this section of scripture that we're looking at together gives some real valuable lessons regarding serving the Lord and being engaged in the Lord's work. If you look back with me in chapter 12, verse 25, where we pick up this morning, it says there to us that Barnabas and Saul had returned from Jerusalem when they had, notice, fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So take notice, if you are a note taker mentally or by pen and paper or whatever, that in our service for the Lord, the first thing we take note of is that in our service for the Lord, we should be reliable and fulfilling and faithful in completing whatever it is that we embrace to do as a task for the Lord or some role in the Lord's service or some responsibility that pertains to doing the Lord's work. This verse, verse 25 here, is basically a summary verse that describes the completion of a mission or a ministry that Saul and Barnabas had been assigned and took upon themselves to perform. Remember back at the end of chapter 11, these two men, Saul and Barnabas, were told they're in the church of Antioch, where it says faithfully teaching the believers there in the church. It says they were regularly gathering with them. They were giving instruction. They were explaining the word of God. And so they were serving in this capacity as teachers and leaders to help equip the church in the knowledge of God and grounding people through the teaching of the word of God. But you remember what happened. It said a severe famine came upon the whole land and the church of Antioch being very... uh, susceptible to the work of God's grace that was happening among them, it says, they were stirred with compassion, remember, for their fellow family spiritually in the area of Judea, the church in Jerusalem. And so as their hearts were stirred with compassion, they wanted to relieve the fellowship in Jerusalem that was struggling in some way. So we're told in Acts chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, let me remind you of it. It says, so the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the believers there in that church, maybe they were more well off than the believers in Jerusalem. They had capacity to help financially to a greater degree. Maybe this, they were stirred by the grace of God, whether they had the resources or not, and they just trusted, Lord, rather than keep for ourselves, these believers are struggling just like we are. Whatever reason, they send this financial donation, this relief financially, monetarily, from Antioch to the church in Jerusalem. And it says that they send it to the leadership there, by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. So Saul and Barnabas, two of their leaders as ambassadors, take the money. They make the long journey to travel down to Jerusalem to deliver this financial aid. And we read here in chapter 12, verse 25 now, it says that once they had delivered that money, they then returned from Jerusalem back to the church at Antioch. But notice the text, verse 25, it says when they did what? When they had fulfilled their ministry. They returned after they had fulfilled their ministry. Again, the one translation renders that had fulfilled their mission. The Holy Spirit wants us to know they reliably completed the task that they took upon themselves to do for the Lord that they carried to fruition, they followed through with the ministry they were given, these two servants faithfully completed their mission. Once they had fulfilled their ministry, then they returned back. It doesn't say they left it unfulfilled or they, they did some of it but not all of it or they did it and gave up on it. It says, no, they completed the task. They faithfully fulfilled their ministry and their mission. And God wants us to see their faithfulness and service that they completed the thing that the Lord had given to them to do. They followed through in a reliable manner with that thing which they took upon themselves to do. 
Now, these men were faithful servants. No wonder men like Saul, who ultimately we know becomes Paul the Apostle, and Barnabas were used so extensively by the Lord in the early church because they were not necessarily talented. They were faithful. They were reliable. They were committed and devoted. Jesus said, he who is faithful in what is little will also be faithful in what is much. The implication Jesus is saying is if a person can prove themselves to be faithful in little things, small tasks, minor assignments, you know, smaller responsibilities, that if they prove themselves faithful in those things, then Jesus says those are the individuals who will be faithful if you give them a whole lot more to do as well. The implication being the opposite. If people can't be faithful in little things, then Jesus is saying then they're not going to be faithful in bigger, more important matters. And the Lord takes that into consideration. Again, faithfulness is such an important part. It tells us, Paul writing to the Corinthians, that it's required in stewards to be found faithful. It doesn't say it's suggested. It doesn't say it's recommended. It doesn't say it's more helpful. It says it's required. And when, so the Lord gives us any stewardship of the work of his kingdom, it's required, it should be of us, that we're faithful and that we follow through. This is a wonderful example the Bible gives to us here in the early church of these two servants of the Lord that we as well, in our service for the Lord, whatever it is, whatever the Lord allows us to do by his grace, that we would be reliable, that we would fulfill it, that we would carry it to completion, that we be thorough in what we do and whatever we embrace, a task, a responsibility, a role, that we be faithful in bringing it to completion, fulfilling things, doing things thoroughly and to the best of our ability. My question this morning in light of this is how are you doing in that area? In the way that you serve the Lord and the opportunities the Lord gives you to be engaged in his work, how faithful are you being? Are you being faithful in those things? Are you carrying them through? Do you, do, you, do you carry them out to completion and fulfill what the Lord gives you an opportunity to do to serve him? That's very, very important in the Lord's work. Now, as we come to chapter 13 in the book of Acts, it's a transition chapter for us in the book of Acts because the, sh the focus now shifts predominantly from the church of Jerusalem and the work that was happening in the Jerusalem church and it now shifts to the church of Antioch and the ministry work of who we know as Paul the Apostle. He's been referred to as Saul up to this point. The church of Antioch is this diverse church of both Jews and Gentiles, which will become the pioneer church for gospel outreach and evangelism and missions work and church planning. Chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Acts give us the record of Paul's first missionary journey as he is sent out to go out and begin to share the gospel and church plant. Look with me in verse one. It says, now in the church there that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Then it lists them, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius and Menaean, it says, as well as Saul. So notice the church of Antioch had diversity among it, and it also had a real depth in its leadership. We can tell that. Notice the spiritual depth of those leading the congregation there. It says, mentioning these five men listed, that they were prophets and teachers. Now, a prophetic ministry is basically a ministry that included in the early church speaking words of guidance to the church. Those who were operating in a prophetic ministry would speak forth under the Spirit's direction a timely word to provide guidance to God's people. Maybe it was a word of uh, revelation, something that was upcoming. Sometimes it might have been a word of direction for a believer or for the church as a whole. Sometimes it was a word of warning, a word of guidance, a word of encouragement or exhortation. Sometimes it was a word of, of comfort or to, to strengthen the believers to be faithful and to carry on. But these would be timely words that the prophets would speak, giving insight and revelation by the Spirit's ministry to give guidance to God's people. Those who had a teaching ministry or the function or office of the teacher were those who were helping people get grounded spiritually. These were those who were gifted by the Lord and by the Spirit's enablement to basically consistently explain and expound the truths of God, 
to take the word of God and give explanation and application and instruction from the scriptures to God's people, to feed the flock, that they might be strengthened, that they'd be more rooted spiritually, to increase the people in their knowledge of God and the ways of the Lord. They help people to mature and to stay healthy. They equipped the believers how to effectively serve the Lord and how to live faithfully for Christ. So they were grounding the people spiritually. So you had both prophets and teachers and we're given a list there in verse five of some of these men and notice the diversity among them. It says one of them was Barnabas. We know Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus, a Jew from out across the Mediterranean, the Cyprus. We've read of him thus far that he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And Barnabas had a real uh, inclination towards encouragement. He just was one of those kind of individuals that really knew how to come alongside people, pick up those who were down and, and kind of encourage those around him like a coach to just you know keep going and to pursue the best that God had for them. We're told as well there in verse one that another of these men that were prophets and teachers was a man called Simeon. It says, who was called or referred to as Niger. Now, that word Niger in the Latin literally just means black. So it's very likely that this man, Simeon, was probably a descendant from the African continent with darker skin and was known in that way among the people, maybe from the river Niger there or perhaps around the area of Niger or even the area Nigeria uh, that we know of. So Simeon, being from a totally different place, the African continent, Barnabas is from Cyprus, and then you have Lucius of Cyrene, that was an ancient Greek colony in northern Africa. Then fourthly, Menaean, it says, who was brought up with or raised with Herod the Tetrarch. That would be Herod Antipas, the Herod that was around during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. So this man was raised in connection some way, it says raised with kind of connected to, brought up with Herod. So this guy was brought up in some way, we don't know, together with the chaotic Herodian dynasty. We talked about the Herods last week. They were a whacked out family. I mean, they were dysfunction on steroids, the Herods were. So this guy's upbringing was exposed to some really tough things in his background, but yet now here he is, saved and a spiritual leader, a solid minister within the church. And then, of course, lastly, we have reference to Saul. And Saul, we know, was a Hebrew to the core. And remember, he was this great persecutor of the church. So you look just at this leadership here and quite a level of diversity among them, but it was reflective in many ways of the church of Antioch because the church of Antioch was a very mixed, diverse congregation. People of all different nationalities, different social status, various backgrounds, but they were all united in the Lord. They had many unique differences among them as a congregation, but they had this incredible unity because they all served the same purpose. They wanted to honor the same king, and that was Jesus. And so they had their distinctions, but yet there was this incredible unity among them and the Lord used this church powerfully because of that. Look at verse two and three. It says, and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So here we see, as I said, the calling and now the commissioning of these two men to basically fulfill a work that the Lord desired for them to accomplish. And the Holy Spirit designates this and records it here for us. And I'll tell you, verse two and three here, so many wonderful observations that could be made regarding church function and ministry and missions principles. I could honestly preach an entire sermon just on verse two and three. You may not like that, and I won't. But, but let me just, if I could, for time's sake, just make some of many observations that could be made from verses 2 and 3 there as we're given this record. Notice, first of all, in verse 2 there, that their desire was first to bring pleasure to the Lord before it was to do work for the Lord. Let me say that again. Their desire was first to bring pleasure to the Lord even before they had an interest in working for the Lord. Do you see what it says in verse two there? It says they were ministering, not for the Lord, ministering to the Lord. How do you minister to the Lord? Through worship, 
and prayer and praise and just blessing the heart of the Lord, spending time with him. And you know what? It was out of ministering to the Lord that these believers were properly prepared to then function and work and minister for the Lord. And this is such a crucial lesson because so many times believers find this sense of fulfillment and identity and satisfaction in what we do for the Lord. And it's almost as if like anything else in the world, spiritually, we can do the same. You know, we find our identity and our fulfillment and our purpose and what we do for the Lord. I want to minister for the Lord. And the reality is the Lord says, you want to minister for me and you don't even seem like you're interested in ministering to me. And, you know, the highest calling in the Old Testament, the priests were those who, it says, regularly ministered to the Lord. From God's perspective, that was a more sacred, high spiritual calling. They've had the privilege to minister to the Lord, to be a worshiper, to be someone who loves to pray and worship and spend time with the Lord. And look, it's out of that. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that's the basis for healthy, stable, long-term ministry. I see over the years, many, you know, 20 plus years now as a senior pastor anyway, people who, you know, they, they will ultimately substitute all their service for the Lord for sitting in the sanctuary and just worshiping and serving the Lord. I've seen over the years people who they just don't want to do this and this and this and this and this, this and this, but they don't ever even want to sit in church. They don't even want to minister to the Lord. It's necessary that we first minister to the Lord and it's out of the basis of someone who ministers to the Lord that the Lord says, yes. That person loves me, their heart's in tune with me, my spirit's at work in their life. They're a great vessel now to go minister for me and to be used by me then as an instrument out of the basis of that love. So again, just want to encourage you, always make your priority loving, ministering to Jesus. And then you'll be very effective all the more in being able to minister for Jesus. So notice also they sought to keep their flesh in subjection rather than you know, allowing it to get out of control. They sought to keep their flesh in subjection so they could focus on the things of the Lord as all these things unfolded. Notice as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And of course, fasting is that spiritual discipline where a person, whether food or something else, practices the denial of their flesh or the refusal of bodily appetites in some way so they can simply focus more on what's spiritual. And this discipline that the Lord speaks to us about in his word is, is a discipline fasting whereby we might give greater attention to that which is of the spiritual realm. Thirdly, take notice that it was in this early church, the Holy Spirit who was directing the affairs of the church. It wasn't a planning board. It wasn't a great group of uh, ruling elders. It wasn't people who had a lot of insights or ideas or what's going on out there and can we bring in a marketing plan? Notice, how was the church being directed? It was being directed by the Spirit. You see what verse 2 says? It says, as they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, hey, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work which I want them to go engage in. Again, very beautiful to see that it was the Spirit directing the early church. How did the Holy Spirit speak and say that? Well, we can't be certain. My best guess is it probably was through a prophetic word. It says there were prophets and teachers. They were ministering to the Lord and the Holy Spirit spoke. We can't be certain, but it's very likely as they were just worshiping and seeking the Lord, maybe having a prayer meeting and a gathering. It was in the midst of that, the Lord put a prophecy by the Spirit on somebody's heart and they spoke forth a prophetic word and they knew it was of the Holy Spirit who was giving direction for this ministry work. Notice also, fourthly in these verses, that the Spirit of God selected and identified who would do the Lord's work. It wasn't a nominating committee. It wasn't, hey, who's interested? It was the Spirit of God who selected and determined, set apart Saul and Barnabas. It was the Holy Spirit's determination. The Spirit identified and chose who was to serve. Now, I point that out because it is unique if you really consider too, and I think all the more an indication that this was the Spirit of God, because it also seems in some ways almost contradictory to how men might typically do things. Think about who gets called to leave this church and to be sent out onto the mission field. It says Saul and Barnabas. Wait a minute, Saul and Barnabas, aren't they those, those like the, the top guys in the church? Remember, they were the ones who were teaching the church for an entire year. It would seem like Saul and Barnabas were like the two co-pastors or senior pastors. You know what I'm saying? Like here are the guys who probably have the most experience in ministry 
who are, in a sense, being used by the Lord greatly among the church of Antioch, and yet it's almost as if the Holy Spirit says, yes, send away the best. Take those who are most experienced and take them and send them out and let others step up and carry on the work that they then move on from. Now, that's very interesting because often we don't envision the Lord working in that way. We think, hey, we want to keep around our experienced people. I mean, if we're going to send somebody out, find a young guy, find a new guy, right? And just, you know, and that's typically a lot of times the way that we envision church planning or sending people out. We think, hey, okay, let's raise up young guys or let's raise up those who are inexperienced and send them out to church plant. And here in the word of God, they did the opposite. The Holy Spirit said, no, let those people step up into greater roles of maturity in the current function and, and the Spirit of God takes the most experienced, the most seasoned, and he says, send them away. Because church planning is not easy. So send them away out onto the mission field. Send them away to make the steps and the sacrifices necessary to go forth and to start anew in some fresh way. And the Holy Spirit determines the work to be done and then directs them who and how they're to accomplish it. And even once they received direction from the Lord, notice they still sought the Lord further because verse three says, then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. Even after the Lord spoke, they still kept praying before they carried this out. They did not take lightly sending people into ministry. And let me just say, I think one of the greatest mistakes sometimes the church makes, and, and I'm gonna go so far as to say, particularly in, in what I see modern happening in the church is we don't take enough time to make sure before we launch somebody into ministry and then sometimes we have some problems and casualties because people go out with great charisma and talent but little character and that's not good it's not good for the welfare of the lord's people and often for the honor of jesus we want to be sure. Paul says, don't lay hands on any man hastily. That can always be a very dangerous thing. And notice, when they did send them out, though, the existing leadership and church recognized that this was of the Lord, and it seems got behind them and sent them away. It says that the leadership laid hands on them, and they were sent by their existing church. And I think that whenever we engage in some ministry for the Lord or go out, it's prudent to honor the fact that, you know what, I want the existing leadership of the church that I'm a part of to recognize my calling, to identify it, to ratify. Yes, we see the Lord's hand upon you, and so therefore we want to put our hand upon you and be behind you in what you're doing. I think it's an important thing that God works in those functions and ways when he's accomplishing his purpose and sending people out on missions fields and church planning and so on and so forth. Well, verse four, notice it goes on to say, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they then went down to Seleucia and then from there they sailed to Cyprus. So here we get a record <clears throat> of the start of this first official missionary journey. And again, though these two servants of the Lord as ministers who were experienced, were recognized and ordained by the authority of their existing church leadership, though clearly they were being supported and sent out, it says there, verse uh, two, that, or verse three, excuse me, that they were sent away by their church. They were sent out. They didn't just go out. It says they were sent out with support. But more important, notice verse four, it says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. That is above all else in the end game more important than all those other things combined is that we are being sent out by the Holy Spirit. That is more crucial than all the other things. Church history certainly has throughout it some who have went out to do ministry, but they were never sent out by the Holy Spirit. And there is a difference there are those who have went out to do God's work, but they were not sent out by the Holy Spirit. In our service for the Lord, that's what we want and need to be sent out by the Holy Spirit, to know that it is the Spirit of God who's the one that wanted us to do that work, that it's the Spirit of God who wanted us to do that work when we did that work, 
that it's the Spirit of God who's ordained and empowered us and is sending us out to go forth and do ministry and preach and teach or plan or establish churches or go on a mission field or whatever function we may serve the Lord in. This applies in all areas of service. We want to be sent by the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Spirit and His power and leading. Look, we want to be available to the Lord. Absolutely. And there is no ability that is better than availability when it comes to serving the Lord, just making yourself available. But though we want to be available to the Lord and willing to go, we also want to wait to be sent by God. Remember what the prophet said? He said, here am I, Lord. But then he said, send me. I'm available, Lord, but still send me. In other words, Lord, if you want me to be the one to go, then send me. If you want me to be the one to go. Lord, I don't want to just go out because it sounds like a good idea or because of some other reason I feel compelled to, to go do something. Lord, I don't want to do it because it interests me. I want to be sure that it's you who are sending me, Lord that this is something you've set me apart to do and that you intend for me to step forth and to do this. I want to be sent with your authority and favor, Lord, with your power and your protection and your promise to provide for me and help me and be with me if you're asking me to do that. Lord, I don't want to go unless you're sending me. And this is very important. Beware of just going out to serve the Lord in good intention or even in godly interest. Make sure that you're being sent out by the Holy Spirit because the Bible says it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That is how the Lord's work unfolds. Well, once they knew that they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit, notice they then became practical and they actually went. They did it. They didn't sit around and pray forever. They knew they were being sent, and once they knew they were being sent, verse 4 says, they then went down to Seleucia, the, the uh, seaport there, and from there they sailed out to the island of Cyprus. Remember, Cyprus was Barnabas's homeland, so maybe they had some connection there practically. I, I don't know. Verse 5 says, and when they arrived in Salamis, they then preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. So upon arriving there on the eastern shore of the island, they land at Salamis, that major city there. It was a main seaport for the island's commerce and what passed through the island. And it appears, when you look at the book of Acts, that Paul's kind of... Uh, protocol or his method of church planning when you look at paul's church planning in the book of acts that paul would typically go to more populated areas in major cities and he would seek to establish a work or plant a church there with the intention that that would then become a healthy spiritual hub that could then reach outlying areas as people went back to their own communities and and those kind of things and notice what they did when they went and arrived verse 5 says when they arrived there in that community in, in uh, uh, Seleucia there, Salam, excuse me, it says, verse 5, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Again, synagogues were the gathering places of the Jewish people for worship. They were basically what we refer to today as, as our churches. They were the places where Jews assembled for times of prayer and worship of Yahweh God and kind of a Jewish version of what we would think of today as a church. And notice what Paul would do. He'd go to the synagogues of the Jews and he would use the opportunity and protocol of how a synagogue functioned to take advantage of the opportunity to preach God's word and share Christ. Now, we'll discuss more of how that works actually in the second part of chapter 13 next week. But please take note, particularly when the Holy Spirit sent out these people into missions work and they went out to plant churches and do God's work. Do you see what their primary focus was? It was preaching the word of God. It was delivering the word of God to people because it's the word of God when it's proclaimed that leads people to salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that changes people's lives. It's the word of God that strengthens people who are already believers and makes people mature disciples. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, 
reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good what? Work. It's what makes stable believers and healthy followers of Christ. It's fundamental for the activity of the church to have a church that's healthy and stable and can be then fruitful in its expansion. Notice also we're told there in verse 5 that when they went out, do you see what it says? It says they also had John as their assistant. Now, this is John Mark, a younger man whose mother hosted the prayer meeting we saw back in chapter 12. And remember, at the end of chapter 12, we're told there that when they went on their prior trip down to Jerusalem with the relief money, that they brought along this younger man, John Mark, as their assistant then as well to observe and help, probably in small ways. So now when they go out as they're set apart to go, notice it says here, as they went out on this missions journey, it says they brought along John Mark as their assistant. Some translations say as their helper. Again, an assistant or a helper is someone who's doing tasks or duties in a supportive role. They're doing things to unburden a leader or a primary person to serve in ways to just offer help or assistance, to take on tasks or roles or responsibilities, to help the work that's trying to be accomplished. Kind of like John Mark here serving, we might say like an apprentice. We talk about having an apprentice in the plumbing industry or an apprentice to an electrician. Well, this is kind of the idea. He was serving like an apprentice in ministry. Or we might say a, an intern, you know, again, learning by on-the-job training. And let me just say, by way of personal experience myself, personally, I think that is the absolute best way to be well-equipped for the Lord's work in ministry is on-the-job training. I'm not diminishing the value of Bible schools and Bible colleges and seminaries or cemeteries or whatever they become. But I'm telling you, there is, just like there is no substitute that if you want to be a good electrician, work next to a competent electrician, right? And, and, and in the same way in the Lord's work, there's something very, very valuable, irreplaceable, and I think we see it in the New Testament, of being someone who's willing to learn how to do ministry and serve the Lord by on-the-job training, by just being around, getting engaged, getting involved. You know, I read early on as a young Christian man having a heart to want to serve the Lord, he who walks with the wise grows wise. And you know what I did after that? I never stopped hanging around my pastor. Now, I'm not inviting you to hang around me 24-7. That's not what I'm saying there. But I just recognized, you know what? There are things to be gleaned, things to be learned. So if he's doing this, I want to pay attention. If he's doing that, I want to observe. I want to see. Do you know how I learned to do weddings and funerals? I never had a class. I went to funerals, and I paid attention. What does he do at a funeral? What does he do at a wedding? How does he, and just on-the-job training. What things matter? What are priorities? Look, there's something very valuable about just being around. The, there's no limit to what we can learn by just being available in God's work. It's a great way to learn. And you know what? It's a good and important thing, I believe, to invest in others when we serve the Lord. Now, if you're someone who's actively serving the Lord in any capacity, let me encourage you. Look for ways to bring people in and get them involved. Pull somebody alongside. Let them see what you're doing. Let them participate. Get engaged. Give them an opportunity to do something. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And here we see them doing that with John in this early church description. So verse 6 says, When they had then come to the island of, through the island to Paphos, which brings them over to the western shore, the capital city, of the island, it was where the government and military bases were. When they went to the other side of the island, now verse 6 says they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He had an interest to hear the scriptures. But Elymas, the same man, the sorcerer, for so was his name translated, he withstood Saul and Barnabas, notice, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So upon arriving there in the city, they had this unique opportunity to begin to interact with a, 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 a political leader, a man of influence, but it's met with instant spiritual warfare. 
That's what's being described here. Verse 7 says there was an open door, probably from the Lord clearly, to establish some connection with this pro-council. Verse 7 describes him. Sergius Paulus, who was a governor of the province there in that Roman Empire. And so here's this man, Sergius. He's a man of power. He's a man of influence, a man of position. He's got great wealth. They lived luxurious lives. Roman rulers did. But it also says, verse 7, he was an intelligent man. The idea is he's probably pretty educated. Uh, he was someone who enjoyed learning, and somebody who's an educated, intelligent person will never be fully satisfied until they get the truth on matters. And so this man, notice, had a spiritual appetite. He was actually searching for answers. He had all this worldly stuff, but something in him was still missing. And so he's searching for answers. It says there that he actually invited Saul and Barnabas because he sought to hear the word of God from them. He wanted to hear what God's word said. He was curious. He was inquisitive. Hey, come and tell me what, what this Bible says. He wanted to hear the word of God. So this incredible opportunity to share God's word exists, but notice in serving the Lord, opportunity is oftentimes matched with opposition. When serving the Lord, opportunity, God-ordained opportunity is often going to be matched with opposition because this man had a close associate referred to here as an advisor who had attached himself to the pro-council as a wicked man. And it says a few things about him, that he was Jewish, verse 6 tells us, that he was a sorcerer and a false prophet. That's a pretty bad dude. Somebody who was engaged not only in false prophecy he was misleading people and misguiding people but he also practiced witchcraft and sorcery he was into spells and so forth and it was a common practice for rulers to have advisors next to them and particularly spiritual advisors because they wanted to know and discern what are the gods telling me to do in regards to my decisions but sadly this man did nothing but keep the pro-council blinded to the truth he was a false prophet and he was a sorcerer who was demonically inspired to do witchcraft and so forth. So when Sergius sought to hear the word of God, which would have brought him into the truth, what does it say that this man did? Verse 8, it says, This man withstood Saul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He was running interference to try and keep the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, from hearing the truth and coming to Jesus. He was trying to hinder and hold him back from coming to faith in Christ. One translation says Elymas was interfering and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul were saying. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. This man was actually trying to stop somebody from getting saved. He was actively doing what he could to hinder and destroy this man from hearing the truth and being delivered from his current condition. But look, that's a picture of guess what? Spiritual warfare on steroids. But the reality is that is also a fitting illustration of what often happens in spiritual warfare. The devil will use everyday circumstances, relationships amongst people, people who say things and voices and people who are talking heads to do whatever they can to keep people from hearing God's word to keep people from knowing the truth that they might be set free, to hold people back from coming to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. And we have to be wise and discern that that's what's going on when it's happening, that it's spiritual warfare. It's opposition. Well, look at the response of this evil activity of trying to stop someone from hearing the truth, verse 9 says, Then Saul, who is called Paul, so there's the first mention that his name will now become Paul the Apostle. It says, Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, take note of that, looked intently at him and said, O fool of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So notice, Paul, under the influence of the Spirit, takes a strong stand against this evil 
and demonic activity in resistance to God's will. Now, Paul had already been baptized with the Spirit, but verse 9 tells us here that in a fresh way, he is filled anew, coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit's power and anointing. And as he's coming under the Spirit's power, he's led of the Spirit to take a strong stand against evil influences. It's the Spirit of God who causes him to fight for and protect the value of someone's soul that's being misguided and robbed. And let me just say, folks, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and sometimes that's what love looks like. Sometimes what love looks like is having the courage and the fortitude to take a bold, firm stand for the welfare of people who are being threatened and mistreated and taken advantage of and deceived and misguided and manipulated. Paul boldly confronts this guy. I mean, his language in verse 10 is pretty intense. He says, you are full of deceit. You're a fraud. In fact, you're a son of the devil. I mean, whoa. And he says, all you're doing is perverting the straight way. You're just trying to twist everything that is good and righteous and rob and ruin people's lives. And then Paul pronounces in verse 11 this judgment upon him. And it says, the hand of the Lord is going to come upon you and you're temporarily going to be blinded and see what it's like to be in real darkness. And apparently that was of the spirit because verse 11 says, immediately a dark mist fell on the guy's eyes and he went around looking for somebody to lead him. So instantaneously, this blindness comes upon him. I mean, you look at that and say, wow, apparently God does not take too kindly to someone hindering the welfare of another person's soul. But didn't Jesus himself, God in the flesh, say in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus said that would be a better experience than to, for me to have to deal with them directly. It's pretty intense. The Lord's very protective of the welfare of those that he loves and people's soul and spiritual condition. Look, it's a spiritual war, and sometimes the Lord's servants have to also realize that we're also the Lord's soldiers. And so therefore, sometimes there are occasions when we, by the Spirit of God, must take a firm stand for righteousness. We must be willing to fight against evil influence at times. By the Spirit of the Lord, we should do that at times. My encouragement will be this, just make sure you're being directed by the Spirit of the Lord when you do that, and not your human emotions or your flesh. That's very important and makes all the difference. Well, this powerful experience, notice, affected the pro-council because it says he believed when he saw what had been done. saw the miracle of God because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it had a powerful change and ultimately he still came to faith anyway. And then verse 13 gives us this little interesting closure to this section. It says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they then came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now take notice, another thing we learn from chapter 13 here, as you journey along serving the Lord, plan on at times for disappointments from time to time as a part of the process. It says, as they passed through Paphos over to the mainland, now landing in Perga, something happened. Verse 13 says that John, who they brought along as their assistant, it says he now departed from them. That term is used to refer to abandoning or turning away from a prior commitment. That is, John, at some point in this trip, decided he was no longer interested in serving with them in ministry, and he quit. He went home. He departed. He left his post. Now, there could be many different reasons why John did this. We're not told here. Could have been that maybe he just got discouraged. Maybe he just realized, man, this is, this is more than what I signed up for, and this is tough, and the conditions are hard, and this spiritual warfare stuff is just too much, and it could have been maybe something that uh, Paul decided, and he didn't like Paul's decision. Could have been he was just homesick. Could have just been, well, I mean, just, I mean, this just requires too much sacrifice. And whatever reason, he turns away. And for whatever reason, his departure apparently is something that Paul did not agree with because it had a very negative effect upon the ministry work. Because in Acts chapter 15, when they're about to go out on another missions trip, Barnabas wants to bring John along again and give him another try. And Paul says, absolutely not. 
We are not bringing him along. And Paul's main reason for that stern stand against bringing him along is Paul said he did not remain faithful and committed to the work. And Paul saw the work as so important. He said, look, if he can't stay committed and faithful, then we can't risk bringing him along. We can't risk including him in this. Look, the point, folks, is part of relationships in life and part of the Lord's work means from time to time we will deal with unfaithfulness and unreliability in people. Let me just help you to understand, sometimes in life people just abandon ship. They don't stay the course. They give up, they quit, they find some reason to not follow through. Sometimes people can't handle what it takes to remain faithful to stay committed, to follow through with what they commit to do. And is it difficult? Yes. Unfortunately, though, it just happens. It's a part of life. It's a part of what happens with people and their weaknesses. But when it happens and the great disappointment comes, do you know what we have to do? Adjust, overcome it, and keep going. Because there's one who didn't forsake you. His name is Jesus. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's the most important person that's going to stick with you through the whole process because great is his faithfulness. And we have to recognize this is just a part of what happens from time to time, but what we are doing has a worthy cause. And there's no greater cause you could give yourself to than the cause of serving the purposes of the Lord. No matter what the battles or the disappointments or the hardships, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Any other thing you give your labor time and energy to could be in vain. Any business endeavor, any life pursuit, any... You can labor at some things and the whole world can come crashing down and it can be completely in vain. The economy could collapse. You could lose it. But there's one thing that you can give all your labor and all your energy to and the Lord says it will never in the end be vain. Serve the Lord. Work for the Lord. That labor will never be in vain and that's why the exhortation is so if you are laboring or serving, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always be abounding in the Lord's work. Let's stand together. Let's pray.